God has blessed us with a beautiful day of life, and you bless this meeting with your presence tonight. It absolutely thrills my soul to see Amen Conersfield one more time in a gospel meeting. And God bless you folks for filling them up. And all of you that are visitors tonight, uh, how happy we are that you have come to encourage this effort to bring glory and honor to God in heaven and to get men and women to appreciate the gift of his son. And the home folk here, I'm so glad that you could come and encourage this effort. Appreciate Brother Ramsey's prayer. And uh, those of you that preach, it's an encouragement to any preacher for you to take the time to come and encourage the effort, and we are in your debt tonight. When I think about the great lesson that was presented on that memorable day of Pentecost according to Acts 2, and if you want to go in your Bible, that's where we're going, to Acts chapter 2. Pentecost was a very significant meeting for the Jewish people, one of the three annual feasts that God had ordained for them to keep, and it began their harvest. It was sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, as in Exodus 23. It was sometimes called the Feast of Ingatherings, or rather the Feast of Providing to God Appreciation, Gratitude, as they'd wave a grain before him to signify that they're depending upon him for the harvest truly. And uh, the way they numbered it, so they'd know exactly when it was, according to Leviticus 23, they would number seven Sabbaths after the Passover Sabbath. And the next day, the 50th day, that's Pente 50th, the next day, which obviously would be the first day of the week, is when they would have this great celebration of the forthcoming harvest and acknowledge that to God in heaven. Now here in Acts 2, we're on the day of Pentecost. One of the most significant days that this world will ever know because on this particular Pentecost, prophecies of the Old Testament were unfolding in fulfillment. Peter quotes from Joel, for example. Isaiah had talked about this day. When in Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2, he said, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in top of the mountains and exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the God of Jacob. For he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here we are in the city of Jerusalem. It's on the first day of the week. The church that God had purposed, Ephesians 3, 10, and 11. The church his son had purchased with his blood, Ephesians 5 and 25, is now becoming a living reality. There was a profound message presented by the apostle Peter, and it's recorded for us by the inspired historian Luke there in Acts 2. Peter is affirming that the Jesus that these folks had crucified was in reality Lord and Savior, and Messiah, the Christ. He had emphasized the resurrection of Jesus Christ at least four times in that presentation as a type of confirmation of his true identification and reality. He finally worked his way down to say, we are all witnesses 
that God has raised him from the dead. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart, one translation says. They were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered and said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or crooked generation. And that 40th verse is the one that I want us to key on, where Peter said, Save yourselves from this crooked or perverse or untoward generation. Now, if you're reading from the New King James, it'll read a little differently. It'll say, Be saved from this crooked or this ungodly generation, literally. If you look at the language in the original, what you're dealing with here is an aorist imperative passive. The King James translators obviously were keying on the imperative. Save yourselves. The New King James were keying on the passive. Be saved. Actually, I'm saving myself only when I am being saved. So actually, you could put both of them together and have the truth. If I let the Lord Jesus Christ become my Savior, only in that sense am I saving myself. I cannot save myself by my good works. I cannot save myself by some kind of arrangement that I work out in my own intellect. I am totally dependent upon the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in letting him save me, I save myself in that respect, in that sense. Now I want us to key on this generation, he calls it. This crooked, some translations say, are untoward or perverse generation. You will meet people occasionally who have the idea that this book right here, written in the first century to people in an Eastern culture, has nothing relevant to the 21st century people living in a Western society. People that talk like that reveal they don't know this book and they don't know what's going on. Because people who know what's going on in our culture, in our society right now, and who know this book, know that when Peter is exhorting these people to save themselves from this crooked or untoward generation, that is as relevant as anything could possibly be. This book is up to date. This book is from God himself. So I want us to think about at least three areas where our culture today, our, our generation, our world, parallels that of the first century. We're going to start, number one, with this one. The first century at which time Peter was preaching and when the New Testament was written was a confused generation. They really were confused. So, you know, when Jesus was being tried before Governor Pilate and the Savior said, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Remember what Pilate said? What is truth? You know, that's where a lot of folks are today. 
what is truth. And if you trace the reason for this confusion, you'll find way back in the early 1900s, there was a man who set forth the theory of relativity. His name was Albert Einstein, 26-year-old Jewish physicist. The theory of relativity. And as the British scholar Paul Johnson observed in a book called Modern Times, pages 5 and 6, unfortunately, people jumped from relativity over to relativism. And they concluded there were no absolutes in anything. Time, space, morals, ethics. And he said that became a type of knife that cut people loose from what he called a Judeo-Christian ethic. What is truth? Now finally, through that theory of relativism, a philosophy, if you please, and I would preface that by reminding us of Paul's warning in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So here is a philosophy, a philosophy that, it, that asserts there are no absolutes. It came over into religion in what is known as postmodernism. Postmodernism has four salient characteristics. And number one, no absolute truth. Number two, religion is totally subjective without any possibility of an objective evaluation. It's just, just something that you experience personally and individually. And number three, morals and ethics, that is right and wrong, are decided by a culture. And if they decide to change what they believe to be right or wrong, then they can do that. And then number four, language has no real objective meaning. You just attach to it whatever meaning you want that language to have. Those are four salient characteristics of postmodernism which came out of relativism's philosophy, and that's where we are in the world today. So people have, have a lot of trouble saying that this is absolutely right or this is absolutely wrong. Maybe you've never met a person who was absolutely sure they couldn't be absolutely sure and never saw the inconsistency. But there are folks just like that. And uh, when, when you meet these kind of people, just don't grin or anything, just kindly listen very carefully and wonder how could an educated person make any such ridiculous statement, an absolute statement denying that there are absolutes. Then when you think about the emphasis in the New Testament on the correlation of truth and salvation, be saved from this generation. Well, how are we going to be saved? Listen to 1 Timothy 2.4. Paul said, God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If I'm going to be saved, I'm going to have to come to a knowledge of the truth that informs me that I'm a lost person without the salvation provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to come to the truth about the love and mercy and grace of God revealed in Scripture, not in the theologies of people, but revealed in Scripture. Now, I preach, and I have, I guess, for 63 years, just about, that uh, we're saved by the grace of God. And yet, when, when I hear people say, you know, churches of Christ, they just recently discovered the grace of God. No, brethren have known this for years. And yet, unconditional grace of denominationalism has been imposed upon some people as if this is a brand new discovery. That's not new at all. 
So when I think about the truth that I have to know in order to be set free from the condemnation of this generation, it's a truth that tells me God is real and God loves us and let his son die for us. It's a truth that says my only hope of salvation is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I have to believe him and I have to obey him in order to be saved. There is that connection in my salvation from this generation, and it's a confusion. It's a failure to understand the truth. There is a connection in knowing the truth of God and being saved. Now, there's an interesting, even when you look at, back, look at relativism and the impact on the confusion of this modern day, there's a very interesting statement in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7. This is Paul's very last epistle. He's going to die pretty soon. And he, in fact, he said, I'm already being offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. So he's giving Timothy what he says will be characteristics of the last times, the last days. And these could be the last days of a congregation, the last days of a school, the last days of a nation, and he just outlines these characteristics. Now listen to the one down in verse 7. He says, they're ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They just cannot get truth down where they can ascertain what it really is. Students, perpetual students, never seeing the corpus or the body of truth. That's where we are right now in this world, in this culture. But there's hope. That truth of the Lord that frees us from sin can be known. That's the promise of Jesus. You've read it, John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So when I think about being saved from the confusion of this generation, you and I don't have to go in that area. We can know what we believe and why we believe it and where we stand. When I was a student at Freed Hardman, or then B. Hardman, was one of my favorite teachers. And uh, he used to say, if somebody asks you a question, you ought to be able to give them the answer. Now, this is going to date this thing. You ought to be able to give them the, the answer on a penny postcard and have room left to ask, how are Susie and the kids? Well, you know, if a fella, if it takes him 10 pages to explain himself, he may have a Ph.D. degree, but he needs to learn something about communication. Oh, you're just misunderstanding me. And, you know, we've been down that road. But I'm here to tell you tonight, you and I can know what we believe and why we believe it and can confirm it with the word of Almighty God. You'll know the truth. The truth shall make you free. God wants you to be saved, but you have to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is my hope to be saved from the confusion of this generation? I mean, people, well, you know, you, you really can't know where you are religiously. You just have to be honest and sincere and do the best you can. I don't want to face judgment like that. I want to know where I stand with the Lord. And I can take his word and know where I stand beyond any shadow of a doubt. Now, here's a second characteristic of that first century culture or world. It was a corrupt day. It was a corrupt age. Now, you see any parallel in what they had back then? Let, let me give you a, an explanation of what was going on in the first century. I say let me. Let me just remind you of how the Holy Spirit does it in Romans chapter 1. If you want to know the first century world, read Romans chapter 1. 
They had some very intelligent people, they thought. The people did back in that day. In fact, they were so intelligent, they knew there was no God. And so Paul in Romans 1.20 talks about the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so they are without excuse. Now, it takes a lot of audacity for a fellow to proclaim, I know there is no God. Is he not implying omniscience? He knows everything. Is he not implying I've been all over this universe and I've searched and I couldn't find him and I know there is no God? Are, are any of you uh, in a position to remember that first Russian astronaut that was shot out 200 miles in space and came back announcing he knew there was no God because he didn't see him? Of all the incredible things. They taught me it was about 93 million miles to the sun. And here's a fellow goes out 200 miles and he knows there is no God. Man, audacity is impressive, isn't it? So when I think about a fellow that says, I know there is no God, is he not implying deity himself? I know everything. I've been everywhere. You know what happened back in the first century when people concluded they knew there was no God? They started creating their own gods. They went into idolatry. That's where you go. When you decide... I know too much to believe in God. Get ready for the idolatry. It's coming down the road. So they started worshiping things, four-footed things, and beasts. And then what happened? They lost any real standard for morality. They got confused about their own gender. And so men started practicing with men things that were repulsive to God. And women with women. You say, well, now that doesn't pertain to our age because we don't have anybody that confused about their gender in our day. Uh, they had what you might call same-sex marriage back in those days, which is a ridiculous observation, the very idea. But we, we do hear a little something about that today, don't we? The media, folks, is obsessed with this thing for some reason. Makes you wonder about the orientation of those folks in the media. At least, it makes me wonder about them. And when uh, one of the networks came out as they did recently and spent so much of the morning news announcing that a basketball player had announced that he was gay, I said, I'm pretty sure where you fellows that sit in the ruling part of that organization, I'm pretty sure I know where you're coming from because you're trying to push this off on people. This is not new, folks. It was back in the first century. And then you keep reading Romans 1, and you will read a catalog of 23 different sins that people were involved with, and it starts out when they decided there is no God. We're smart enough to tell you there is no God. Where do you go? It's not a pretty picture when you read that list down there. You'll find things like people without natural affection. Now, maybe you have a better explanation for a woman that'll take her little baby and throw it in a toilet at Disney World than this one without natural affection. If that's not a manifestation of it, what would it take to demonstrate it? You, you read things like murder. Now, you, you read about a young man in Mississippi 
that murders his own mother and then goes to school to see how many of his fellow students he can kill. You know where you read about that? Not just in the newspaper back a few years ago. You read about it in Romans chapter 1. And all kinds of, of man's inhumanity to man all because people concluded we're too smart to believe in God. May the Lord have mercy upon people that do not realize unless there is a God, you don't have any basis to say this is right and this is wrong. Amen. But as surely as God is in heaven and on the throne, when God tells you that murder is wrong, brother, it is wrong. And if it's murdering a little baby, it's still murder. You can call it abortion. That tones it down, you know, euphemisms. We, we are strong on euphemisms. And so you just kind of tone it down. Have you ever read the procedure of a partial birth abortion when the head of this little boy or girl, I'm not talking about a fetus. I don't read in the Bible that Mary was with fetus. I read that she was with child. When this little, little child is being born and the head protrudes from the birth canal and it's stabbed in the back of the head and a strong suction pulls its little brains out. I'm not talking about what they do in some remote area of South America or in the darkest part of Africa. I'm talking about sophisticated USA. And as Senator Bill Frisk said in a speech at Freed Hardeman, it's infanticide. It's exactly what it is. So. Murder, it's right there in Romans 1. The greed today, it's, it's, in, it's called covetousness. We call it greed. The Bible calls it covetousness. Man is for real today. Everything he lists here is a manifestation of people renouncing God and deciding what's right and wrong based upon what God has said. Is there any hope? For us to be delivered from the corruption of this present age, the way it defiles the very conscience of people and soils the mind and the heart, well, let the Apostle Peter tell us the way to escape from it. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And then he says, Wherefore lay apart all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. There's hope, folks. The hope is the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying him to have our very souls purified. See, sin defiles the conscience. It brings shame into the mind and life. And, and we can be delivered from that through obedience to the, to the what? You purified your souls in obeying the truth, the truth revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which lives and abides forever. And in that obedience, when you as a penitent believer turn to the Lord Jesus Christ away from a former life of sin, sweeten your lips with the loving name of the Son of God, 
Submit to his command to be baptized in water to receive remission of your sins because you're baptized into the death of Christ. You're contacting the soul-cleansing blood. You come out a new person. You've been born again. You're in a different relationship now. You're in the family of God. You left the devil's domain, the world, and you're now a born person again, physically one time, spiritually again, and you're a newborn babe. Desire the word that you may grow thereby. It's the word that brought you to that new birth. It's the word that nourishes you as one now born again. Yeah, there's, there's escape from the corruption of this old world all about us. And then in the third place, back in the first century, it was a world under condemnation. I know all of you know John 3.16. I want to give you the next verse. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why didn't God send his son to condemn? It was already condemned. It was a condemned world. Jesus came to rescue the perishing. Jesus came to deliver people from condemnation. You see, humanity was on sin's death row. And that's where, unfortunately, the majority of people are right now. They are on sin's death row. And what will it take for them to forever be moved away from any hope of the grace of God, moved away from any possibility of being blessed by the love of God as they obey the Son of God? I mean, by death, snatched out into eternity. Lost forever and forever. And only God in heaven would know how many people are right there this moment that saw the sun come up this morning and probably had no idea that at this moment they would be out there with the sickening realization, I am lost. There's nothing that will ever be done about it. I am doomed and condemned. Oh. What a tragedy. How sad indeed. That's why we keep preaching a good message of salvation. That's why we keep pleading with people. Like Peter exhorted these people. Save yourselves from this generation. We plead with people. Be saved or save yourselves from the condemnation of this generation. Now how are we going to do that? I won't take you to Romans 8 because here is explained. It is explained to us how we can be delivered from condemnation. Get off of sin's death row. Move over into the realm of life. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these great words of truth. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now here was a law that God had given through Moses that could not set people free from the law of sin and death. It couldn't really move them off of sin's death row. It could prolong the possibility. They could have an atonement 
And the word atonement means a covering over. Their sins could be covered over for a time, but not in the absolute, only in anticipation of ultimately a sacrifice being made for the sin of mankind, those that had lived under the old covenant and those that would live in days of the new covenant. And so no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, if I can learn how to get into Christ, I can learn how to move out of this realm of condemnation. I can learn how to get off a of sin death row. And fortunately, we can read it and we can understand it. Take you to Galatians 3 to let the Holy Spirit explain to us how you get into Christ. It's not complicated. Uh, unless people have been taught false doctrine, they can see it and understand it and appreciate it. The apostle said, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Jesus Christ, have put on Christ. And then he explains, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this statement. And if you be Christ's possessive, if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you know how to get into Christ? How does the Bible say you get into Christ? Well, I'll read the verses right before that one. If you want to be saved, then you accept Jesus as your personal Savior and pray this prayer. Pray the sinner's prayer, and you will move off of sin's death row. You see that in your Bible, don't you? If you do, I want to see your Bible. Where do you think folks are getting ideas like that? Preachers are talking to them as if that's in the Scripture. It's not in the Scripture. This is of man. What did Peter tell people when they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Did he say, accept Jesus as your personal Savior and pray this prayer? No. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now, think about that word remission. If a person comes to me and says, Tom, the test the doctor gave me yesterday show that my cancer's in remission. They are happy and I'm happy for them. What do you mean that cancer's in remission? It no longer is potentially destroying the cells of my body. Those cells are no longer active in, in destroying my life. It's in remission. Well, when my sins are put in remission, they are no longer potentially destroying my soul. They are put in remission. They're not just covered over. They are absolutely forgiven. And, and among the things I love so much about the new covenant under which I'm blessed to live when Jeremiah talked about it, and this is quoted in Hebrews 8 right there in your scripture, God said, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Isn't that beautiful? Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So when I'm in Jesus Christ, you know what's happened? I'm not, not under condemnation. I've been delivered from it. But this, this world all about us is under condemnation. And the eternal tragedy is when a person dies under condemnation. Because there's no longer any hope. It's doom. 
It's a fixed destiny. And that's not what God wants. God wants us to be saved. We read it, 1 Timothy 2, 4. You could add to that 2 Peter 3 when he says in verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish. God wants us moved off of sin, death row. Why? Because he loves us. Jesus died to move us off of sin's death row. Why? Because he loves us. The devil doesn't love us. The Lord does. And yet so many people choose allegiance to the devil. And they reside in his domain called the world. That mass of mankind alienated from God where the devil dominates as the God of this world or the God of this age. That's oh, a tragedy. But it's a reality. Yeah, back in the first century, you see, it was a confused world. 21st century, just like that. The hope, the truth of the Lord found in his word. Back in the first century, man, it was a corrupt day. Drunkenness, murder, all kinds of man's inhumanity to man. 21st century, you know, it's sad. People can be sitting in a restaurant minding their own business, enjoying a good meal, and somebody come in and kill a bunch of them, as happened in Huntsville, Alabama, four or five years ago. You can be minding your own business. You can be in school, and somebody come in and take your life. That's our world. That was the first century world. Folks, listen. Paganism is cruel. The more this culture becomes secular and pagan, the more cruelty you're going to see. Like the old prophet said, they've sown the wind, they reap the whirlwind. We don't like the reaping, do we? You know, I still hurt for those fathers and mothers whose precious little children were shot in that school. Now, if that had been one of my grandkids, I'd, I'd still be grieving, I know. And I hurt for those people, don't you? And, and when I think about all this killing that's going on, and th this, as I mentioned yesterday, I don't call this a human being. He's kind of a creature. Keep those three young ladies in, in a type of prison, abusing them for nearly 10 years. Human beings don't act like that. Uh, kind of creatures, you know, will do that. It's our world. But there's hope. Thanks be to God in heaven for his love for us. Thanks be to God in heaven for his grace toward us. Thanks be to God in heaven for his son for us. Who left the security of the throne of God and the beauty of heaven and came to this earth and identified with us to hear people ridicule him blaspheme him slap him can you, can you imagine that slapping the son of God spitting in his face beating him through a scourging you would not dare beat an animal like that the converted Jewish scholar Alfred Edeshim said it was sometimes called the intermediate death because victims of scourging sometimes died from it and that was only the beginning of the ordeal. Then they nailed him. They nailed him to a cross. 
And they suspended him between heaven and earth, holding on by the nerves in his hands and feet. The pain be stabbing his brain if he sought relief from the pain in the hands and put pressure down. Stabbing the brain, pain. Put in a position where it's very difficult to exhale and so gases build up in the body, the tremors, the shaking of the muscles. Insects can prey upon the wounds in his hands and his, his nose and eyes. I mean, he can't do anything about it. There he is. And while in that terrible situation, that human language would be in poverty to adequately describe, wouldn't you imagine that everybody around that cross is weeping? Not so. Not so. While he's hanging there suffering, baptized in pain and anguish, what are they doing, some of them? Well, you saved others, let's see you save yourself. Come down off the cross and we'll believe you. I know the heart of Tennessee people. I've been blessed to live in this state for many years of my life. I'm going to tell you what you would have done if you'd been there that day. You would have wept. We all would have wept. But that mob had no compassion on a Savior loving them enough to die for them of all the incredible things. But it happened. And you don't think God loves you. Really? You don't think Jesus really cared for you or cares for you? Honestly? This world will never know a love greater than that. And they'll never know care greater than that. And yet there are people that continue to hold on to a perverse generation, a crooked generation, a depraved generation, confused, corrupt, and under condemnation. Choosing that rather than the joy of salvation. Choosing that rather than the hope of life forever. Choosing that rather than living within the con context of God's providential care and keeping. How could it be? How could it be that the devil could so blind the minds of people that they cannot see where they relate to God and his son and the word of the Holy Spirit and eternity? What about you? What about you? Now, I don't know your spiritual status. God knows it, and you know it. So I just plead with you tonight, if you're under condemnation, don't stay there. I beg you, don't stay there. What did Peter do? With many other words, he testified, and he exhorted them. He's pleading for them. He's urging them. To be saved from that generation. As I'm pleading with you, be saved from this generation. Turn to the truth of the Lord. Turn to the potential of purification by obeying the truth of the Lord. Coming tonight to confess his sweet name as a penitent believer. Repenting is when you change your mind about the way you have lived and the way you will live. And this very evening, Randy could baptize you into Christ.
into that beautiful relationship with the Son of God, wherein and whereby you will become a child of God. And heaven will be glad, and people that love you will rejoice, and you'll be happy too. It'll be a happy day for you. If you once knew that joy, and you had the hope, and you had the peace, but the devil kept pulling, his people kept tugging, the deception kept coming at you, finally you just kind of caved in and gave up. God hasn't given up on you. He has a way for you to come home. Come back with a penitent mind. Throw your soul upon the mercy of God in fervent prayer. And know again the joy of salvation. I, I pray that God will bless you for the wonderful way you've listened to this part of his word. And I pray that he's been pleased with this presentation of it. To him be all the glory both now and forever. Randy's going to sing us a song to encourage anyone to respond to the Lord's invitation. Not mine. The Lord's invitation. Come to me, I'll give you rest, he said. Let us sing.